Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. And I want to add my happy Mother's Day to all of those sentiments as well. We realize that Mother's Day can be a day of mixed emotions for a room with this many people in it, right? Uh, for some people, you've lost your mom. There's mothers who have lost children. There's some who feel like they've lost the opportunity to have children or the opportunity to have a good relationship with their mother. And so in the scriptures, Paul helps us on days like today. In Romans chapter 12, he says that as the body of Christ, we learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. And the more you allow yourself to be a part of the community uh, that God is building, the more you're going to realize that many days those things are happening at the exact same time. And one of the signs of maturity in your faith is that you can rejoice with those who rejoice at the exact same time that you're grieving with those who grieve. So whatever today is like for you, we know that there is grace available. We do honor and love and give thanks to our moms. And uh, if you're able to be with your mom today, we pray it will be a blessed time together. Next week, we're going to be starting a brand new series. I just want to tell you about that before we jump into this morning's message. We're going to be starting a four-week series called Radical Generosity. And we're going to talk about the ways in which the gospel makes us shockingly and radically generous with our lives. Uh, so we're going to talk about radical living. We're going to talk about radical forgiving, how Christians forgive in ways that are mind-blowing. And then also radical giving, how part of the way that we respond to the gospel is by opening up our hearts and opening up our hands. So we're going to start that next Sunday. We're looking forward to that. But this morning, we are finishing week four of our series, Transformed, where we've been talking about the ways in which God wants to not just um, sort of upgrade us, but radically transform us and make us new. And by way of sort of reminder, our vision here at Trinity, which is what we exist to see happen, is gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. We believe that this is why we are here as a church, to see the gospel of Jesus Christ change people's lives spiritually, change our community socially, to do incredible change in us and through us because what God does in us, he wants to do through us. So what is our mission? What do we exist to do? This is our mission as our church, as a church. We exist to make disciples for the glory of our God and for the good of our community. This is why we show up. This is why we do everything we do to make disciples for God's glory and for the good of our neighbors. So how are we doing that? And that's what we've been talking about in this four-week series. And we've introduced this discipleship circle, this discipleship pathway, which moves us through this process of being transformed. And it starts, we talked two weeks ago, it starts by coming and seeing Jesus. Until we see him in his beauty and in his truth, and we have a significant personal encounter with him, we can't be transformed. So it starts there. The next step that I talked about last week was connect and be you. That we've not been saved just to stay on our own, but we've been saved to be brought into a family, built into a structure, parts of the same body, vines in the same vineyard. Connect and be you. And this morning we're at this sort of last step. And of course it's not the last step in the sense that you arrived and you're done and you get your badge and you move on. But the last step as far as this is what a mature believer is aiming for, to commit and lead others to do what? And that's why it's a circle, to commit and lead others to come and see Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a story at the very end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones, John chapter 21. And we're going to look at a story, uh, an encounter between Jesus and his disciple, Peter. Now, 
This is after Jesus has died on the cross, after Jesus has been buried, and after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And Jesus appears to his disciples. And in this story, in John chapter 21, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared since his resurrection. He appeared to the disciples one time in a room when Thomas wasn't with them. He appeared later with, their, with Thomas. And now this is about a week later. So it's been about a week since the disciples have seen the resurrected Christ. And the question that we're going to try and answer this morning is what does the transformed life look like? When you've had a transformation experience with Jesus Christ, what do our lives look like and who are we? And the first thing that we're going to see from this story is that you are not who you used to be. How many of you would say, I'm glad I'm not who I used to be? There's some change. There's some growth. Uh, Think about what these disciples had experienced and seen for three and a half years. They've seen Jesus do miracles and healings and walk on water and turn, uh, you know, water into wine and multiply fish and bread. and, And then they watched him go to a cross and die where they thought it was all over. Then they encountered the resurrected Christ. They never expected that to happen, even though Jesus told them over and over, this is what's going to (laughs) happen. They still didn't expect it. See, they see the resurrected Jesus, and now they're thinking, what next, right? And they're happy that he's alive, but there's two things Jesus says after his resurrection that I think gave them pause and made them concerned. And the first one was this. Jesus kept saying, I am leaving, okay? I'm back, and I'm alive, but I'm not back to stay. I'm going to ascend to the Father, and you're going to be here without me. Now, this was not welcome news for the disciples who wanted Jesus to stay and establish his kingdom physically and politically and militarily right then and there. But Jesus also was saying to them, like the Father sent me, I'm sending you, which meant I'm not going to be here, but you got a serious work to do. And so they're struggling with this. Like if Jesus isn't staying, how are we going to do what he needs us to do? In the midst of all this is the man Peter who's struggling more than the others. And we'll talk about why. But let's look at this story. It begins in verse 1 of John 21. It says, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples have left Jerusalem where the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection happened. They're back in their hometowns, a sort of outlying area of Jerusalem in Galilee. Verse 2, several of the disciples were there, Simon, Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, we learned about Nathaniel two weeks ago, the sons of Zebedee, who were been James and John, the brothers, and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. It's one of the most normal sounding sentences in all of the Bible. And they said, we'll come too. And so they went out to the boat and they caught nothing all night. I think it's so interesting that John, who wrote this, remembers this moment where it's been a week since they've seen the resurrected Christ. They don't really know what's coming next. They don't really know what to do with themselves. And Peter's like, I know one thing. I know how to fish. And this is where we found Peter. Or actually, this is where Jesus found Peter, right? Jesus found Peter fishing. This was his livelihood. This is, this is what he was trained by his father to do. This is what the rest of his life was going to be until he met Jesus. And now even though Jesus is alive, he knows Jesus isn't staying. And he's just thinking, I still got bills to pay. I still got stuff to do. I'm going to go fishing. And I have to wonder if Peter thought for a moment, it's back to life as normal. I mean, it was a good run, right? Three and a half years, pretty incredible, pretty amazing. But maybe I just, maybe it was just for three and a half years. And maybe I'll just go back to my normal life. And what we learn is that Jesus walks onto the scene here to tell Peter the same thing he wants to tell you this morning. That when you encounter him, there's no such thing as life as normal. (laughs) 
There's no such thing as going back to who you used to be. If you have been transformed by Christ, you are no longer who you used to be. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. Newly created. Not just sort of that God came to your brokenness and kind of patched you together and did this best, ver- best work he could do on you. But they, in a sense, he starts over with you. He puts a new heart within you. He puts his heart within you. He gives you a new creation. He makes you a new creation. And then the next chapter, Paul says, here's, he lists a bunch of sinful behaviors and sinful activities. And then he says, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and such were some of you. I don't know about you, but how many of you are glad that that's true of you? This is who you used to be. And I'm not talking that you're perfect now, right? I'll ask your spouse if you think you're perfect. You're not perfect. But you used to be this way. You're not this way anymore. And Paul says, here's why. Because you were cleansed. Now, as I read this, I want you to hear these were all things that were done for you, not things that you did for yourself. That is the gospel. Here's what God did for you, not here's what you've done for yourself. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. What does this mean for us this morning? It means this, that in just a moment, in a moment, Jesus can change the most important thing about you but it'll take the rest of your life for him to change everything else. (laughs) In a moment, Jesus can change. What is the most important thing about you and me this morning? The most important thing about us is how God the Father, the righteous judge of the universe, views us. And in just a moment, Jesus can change our status in the eyes of the Father. Why? Because when we place our trust and hope fully and solely in Jesus Christ, he gives us his righteousness. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins, He doesn't just wipe our slate clean, but he fills our slate up with his perfect performance record. So his resume now is yours. His trophies go on your shelf, so to speak. His righteousness is given to you. So in just a moment, God the Father, because of the faith and trust you've placed in the Son, he sees you, declares you to be, and treats you as righteous, as if you lived the life that Jesus lived. That's called justification in a moment. Jesus changes the most important thing about you. But it's gonna take the rest of our lives for him to change everything else. (laughs) And the truth is, is he's not gonna change every single thing about us. We're not gonna be perfect on this side of eternity. But I want you to know that you are not who you used, you, you are not who you will be someday, but you also are not who you used to be. Someday you and I will be in the very presence of God, we will be in heaven with God, and on that day, I think the best thing about that day will be that we will be with Jesus But the second best thing about that day is that on that day, you and I will finally serve Jesus the way we wish we always had. No more struggle, no more insecurity, no more ups and downs. You'll serve him perfectly. You are not yet who you will be, but you are not who you used to be. And that's the testimony of every Christian. I'm not who I'm going to be someday, glorified in every way, but I'm not who I used to be by the grace of God. And when we have an encounter with Christ, he does not leave us the way he found us, and it's a radical transformation. You know, I use uh, Apple products mostly, and so I have an iPhone. And if you have an iPhone, you know that when other people with iPhones send you text messages, the box is blue, right? But when someone with an Android texts you, the box is green, I'm letting all the Android users in on a little Apple secret. And so some, when my friends switch, when my friends are called out of darkness and into light and they switch from Androids to iPhones, I know the moment they've done it because they send me a text and the box is blue. And I've actually had this happen a couple of times where I'll text my friend back and I'll be like, yeah, you got an iPhone. 
And they're like, what? How did you know? They're like, they're so creeped out. They're like, are you following me? How do you know that I have an iPhone? And so I explained to them, well, because your box is blue now, not green anymore. You know, with our smartphones, we, we load them up with apps. Everybody's got different apps. I'm always fascinated to see the apps on people's phones and what they use the most. And sometimes when we think about what Jesus does for us, we think that Jesus, coming to Jesus, is like getting another app added to our phone. We got all these other apps, all these other things that we're focused on, and Jesus is this additional app that we click on when we need him, and he's helpful in very specific ways, but he's just kind of part of a much bigger picture. But if I can push this metaphor a little further, Jesus is not an app on your smartphone. He's the operating system. (laughs) He is a brand new OS. He changes everything about us. We are not who we used to be. So the question for us this morning is, what has changed in you since you've encountered Jesus? What are the areas of your life where you find God is giving you more patience for people, more love for people that you used to dismiss, more faith to trust him in hard seasons? He wants to change everything about us. And as the story continues, Jesus yells out to the men, how's fishing going? And they're like, terrible. We fished all night, which night was actually the best time to fish in this culture, and we caught nothing. And Jesus says, throw your note on the right side. And this is actually the exact same thing that happened when Jesus first called Peter. And so they throw their net onto the right side. They pull in 153 fish. And John all of a sudden goes, that's Jesus. And Peter, the impetuous, impulsive one, takes his robe off, jumps into the water, and swims for shore. He wants to be first. And Jesus says, bring the fish in. Let's have breakfast together. It's in this scene that we learn the second thing about what happens when we're transformed. Not only are you not who you used to be, you are not what you have done. Another way of saying this is you are not the worst thing that you have done. Why is Peter fishing again? I wonder if Peter feels, now if you know this story, Peter was one of the closest followers of Jesus. And the night on which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said, listen, you guys, I'm gonna suffer tomorrow and you're all gonna abandon me. And Peter spoke up and said, not me. All these other losers, (laughs) they're scared. They might abandon you, but not me. I will be with you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, before the rooster crows, which means before tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, no possible way. And then that's exactly what he did. He denied Jesus three times in his greatest hour of need. And I wonder how Peter felt ever since that day. And I wonder if he felt like he didn't belong anymore. He wasn't part of the crew. He wasn't a disciple. He didn't deserve to follow Jesus. And actually, there's a clue that makes us think this is true. In Mark chapter 16, when Jesus is raised from the dead and the women go to the tomb, the angels say to the woman, tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen. Now, why did the angel say, tell the disciples and Peter? It seems redundant. Peter was one of the disciples. Because God knew Peter didn't think of himself as a disciple anymore. He thought that he had disqualified himself from being a follower of Jesus. And so maybe Peter thought, there's no way Jesus can use me, so I'm just going to go back to fishing. And Jesus does something amazing here. And this is one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. I find it to be just this emotionally charged moment. In verse 15 it says this. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And then a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. 
And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. There's so much happening in this scene right here. Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me more than these? What does he mean by that question? There's three possible interpretations, but only one of them is true, and most biblical scholars agree. So some people say, well, Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Are you willing to leave behind your old life? But we actually can't be too hard on Peter here, because the fact that he wanted to go fishing is not evidence that he somehow had turned his back on Jesus. It was just the only thing he knew to do. So he went back to what he knew to do. Jesus is not saying, do you love me more than these fish? Some interpreters say, well, maybe he was asking him, Jesus, or Peter, do you love me more than you love James and John and the other disciples? But that's not what Jesus was asking either. Here's what Jesus was asking Peter. Do you love me more than these men love me? Does your love for me exceed their love for me? And while that might seem like a strange question, here's why he asked it to Peter, because Peter always claimed that he did. Peter was always the first one in line to say, I love you most. I'll follow you the furthest. I'm the closest to you. And so Jesus, on the heels of Peter's failure, puts this question to him, do you really love me more than all these men? And then what happens next is Jesus restores Peter. And he does four things. The first thing is that Jesus does not ignore Peter's failure. In fact, there's two things about this moment that make it very clear that it was set up to remind Peter of his failure. First off, when Peter denied Jesus, he was warming himself by a fire. And on the beach here, there is again a campfire where they're making breakfast. Again, that same smell, that same experience, Peter around a fire again reminds him, brings him back to that night. But the most significant reason why we know that this brought Peter back to that night was because Jesus asked him the question not once, not twice, but three times. And it says the third time it hurt Peter because Peter knew what Jesus was doing. He was restoring him, but it was a painful restoration. Listen, sometimes being restored by Jesus is, is, is hard. It's painful because he's got to get to the sickness in our hearts. He's got to expose some of the things in us. Jesus, if he wants to restore us, he does not do so by glossing over or ignoring the things that we've done against him. He brings us right back to that point, but here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He doesn't leave us there. He's not bringing you there to rub your face in it. He's not bringing you back to your mistakes so that you can somehow do your own form of penance and make it right. He's bringing you back there so that you realize I have no other hope than Jesus and his forgiveness. So he brings him back. But then the second thing he does here is he asks him a question that you and I would never have asked him. Here's the question that you and I would have asked. Peter, promise not to do it again? Are you, are you gonna fail me? Like, this is the way we are, right, with our kids. We're like, tell me you'll never do that. Ever. Promise me you'll never say that word again in church, right? We were always like saying these sort of things to our children. And that's what we would have done. Peter, please, Tell me that you'll never fail me like that again, that you won't ever disappoint me like that again, that you won't ever betray me. Or me. But, but Jesus doesn't ask Peter, will you ever fail me again? Because he already knows the answer. Peter will fail Jesus again. In Galatians 2, there's a very public moment where Paul has to confront Peter because he's not living in line with the truth of the gospel. How many of you are so glad that our salvation doesn't hinge on the question, will you fail me again? But instead, Jesus says, do you love me? And that's the third thing that he does here. He's getting right to the heart. Because if Jesus said to Peter, will you fail me again? Peter could have then said, I'll, I'll try my hardest. I'll do my best. I, th I, th I think I can get it right next time. 
And Peter would leave trusting in himself and thinking in his own ability to get things right. But instead, Jesus goes right to the heart. And isn't it interesting that Peter's, the third time Peter answers a question, he answers it differently than the first two. The first time he says, you know I love you. Second time, you know I love you. And the third time he goes, you know everything. And here's what I think Peter is saying. I don't even know my own heart. You're asking me, Jesus, about, Jesus, you're asking me about my heart, but clearly my heart has already failed me. I have a heart that's prone to wander and to search for other things, but you know everything. You know the future, you know the past, you know the direction I'm going in, and you know that I try to love you, but you are the only one who actually knows if I love you. I don't even know sometimes if I love you. And Jesus is going at the heart here, and he wants to go at our hearts this morning. And then the last thing Jesus does is he doesn't just bring Peter back to what he did, he points him forward to what he wants him to do. He has a good work for Peter to do. And this brings us to our last point this morning, which is this. If you've been transformed by Jesus, you are no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price. Peter here wants to earn his way back in. He, I, I think he would love if, if Jesus would give him some Herculean task to do. He, Peter would have done it. He would have gone for it. But Jesus won't. That's our nature, right? When we hurt someone, we want to, we want to immediately make it back up to them. Our, our little puppy, Mickey, the other day we were, we were in the house and he was having his little crazy hour where he just sprints around the house like a madman for no reason. So he's just running full speed around our house. And I'm sitting on the couch trying to relax. I'm home from work trying to, and I got my feet up. And Mickey comes around the edge and he doesn't see me apparently. And I don't know what part of his body hit me. Felt like a steel rod. <laughs> But he hit my shin so hard that I felt nauseous. Like, it hurt at that sort of level. And I let out a loud scream because it legitimately hurt. And Mickey immediately stopped and kind of was like, looked at me. And as I was like trying to like just catch my breath and I was holding onto my leg, he comes right up and he starts licking me. And he's trying, this is what he does. When he, whenever he's in trouble, as soon as he can get back to me, he gets back to me to start licking my leg or licking. And what he's doing, he's trying to say, are we Okay. Are we good? I love you. You know, that sort of stuff. Don't give me away, please. <laughs> and we do that too. Like we, we, when, we, when we hurt someone, we let someone down, we immediately want to go back. And, and so Peter's looking for, listen, I love you and, and, and I, and I want to love you and you know my heart. So what can I do to prove my love to you? And Peter is so eager to say, I love you more than these people. But what Jesus really is asking is not, do you love me more than these people? but do you love these people the way I do? It's a totally different question. Oh yeah, I, Jesus, I'm at church on Sunday. I could be doing something else. I love you more than all those heathens out there that didn't make it to church this morning. And Jesus is just asking you, yeah, but do you love those people the way I do? Because the greatest evidence of love for Jesus is tremendous love for his people and a heart that breaks for his sheep who do not yet know him, his sheep that are lost, that are wandering, that's the greatest evidence that you love Jesus. Not that you came to church this morning, not that you give to the church, not that you read your Bible every day. Those are wonderful things. But the greatest evidence of a love for Jesus is you can't stop loving the things he loves, which is his sheep. And that's why Jesus calls Peter and says, listen, if you really love me, this is what it looks like. Feed my sheep. Care for my people. Go after those that are lost. Jesus is asking Peter in this moment to commit and lead others. 
And he's asking you and I to do the same. Will we move beyond, we've come and seen Jesus, connecting and being you, attendance and volunteerism and serving, it's all great, but there's more to the Christian life than this. It's more beautiful than this. It's more rich than showing up on Sunday morning. It's more wonderful than serving in kids' ministry, and that's important. It's a life that is committed to feeding his sheep, to commit and lead others. So what does this look like? I'm asking Pastor Antonia to come up. We're gonna close Three things in closing. This is what it looks like to commit and lead others. As you're saying, what does this step of discipleship look like to commit and lead others? We find the lambs of God. We go looking for them. We will rearrange our lives and our schedules and our priorities to position ourselves to be near people who need Jesus. And you'll begin to see people differently. Students, you'll see your friends at school totally different. Instead of just seeing them based on what sort of group they fit in and what sort of style they are and whether or not they're your friend or whether or not you talk to them, you'll begin to see them as people who need the love of God. You'll begin to see your neighbors not just as people who happen to live in the same track as you, but people who someone has to go find that person. Someone has to go looking for that person. Someone has to be willing to leave their comfort, leave their home, leave all the things that make us feel secure and say, I'm gonna commit myself to commit and lead others and to go find the lambs of God. The second thing that we do is we feed the lambs of God. This means we pour our lives into other people. We give our hearts, we give our homes, we open up our tables and we invite people in and we begin to point them to the story of Jesus at work in you. Feeding. Who are you feeding? There's this, I want to show you one verse here in, in Timothy. Paul is writing to this young pastor, and I love this verse because it shows us what it means to commit and lead others. He says to Timothy, Timothy, you've heard me teach things to you that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these gospel truths, these same truths, to other trustworthy people who can then pass it on to others. Do you see what's happening here? There's four generations of faith. Paul pouring his life into Timothy. Timothy pouring his life into trustworthy people who will then pour their lives into other people. The question before us this morning is if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you should be making disciples. And who are you discipling? Who are you feeding? Who are you pouring your life into? Who are you handing your faith off to? Parents, the first people we have to do it is to our children. We gotta disciple our children. That is not Pastor Vicky's job. She's here to help you and serve you but you are the primary disciple maker in the life of your children. So start in your home, but then look beyond your home. Who are we handing off our faith to? So we find, we feed, and then lastly, we're gonna fight for the lambs of God because it gets messy and it requires more than showing up on Sundays. It requires hard conversations. It requires sometimes risking the relationship to be honest with the person to say, hey, I see the, I see the direction you're going in, but I, I'm gonna fight for you. I'm not gonna let you waste your life. I'm not gonna let you ruin your life. I'm not gonna let you throw this away. I'm gonna fight, not with you, I'm gonna fight for you. This is what it looks like. You wanna be someone who commits and leads others at Trinity? You're gonna commit to find the lambs of God, feed the lambs of God, and fight for the lambs of God. And what I believe we have before is this Jesus dream for our lives, the kingdom dream. And we're always in this competition between the American dream and the kingdom dream. You know, many of us in our church, we live relatively comfortable lives. We live in the suburbs. It's very easy to get sucked up in this sort of world where it's just about stocking, uh, setting money aside so that someday we can retire and saving money so that we can vacation and having a beautiful home and having new cars and new stuff and nothing wrong with any of that. But when our lives are built around that, that's not the beauty that Jesus Jesus saved us for. Jesus saved us for the beauty of being spent and poured out for his kingdom. 
and to open up those beautiful homes to people who need to experience the goodness of Jesus and to walk away from certain opportunities that will fill our schedule up so much that we're not able to actually find, feed, and fight for the lambs of God. That's what Jesus saved us for. That's the beautiful life. Not having all the things of this world, but spending our lives in such a way that we help other people find Jesus and experience his goodness and his grace. And we believe as a church that what's, that's what God's calling us to do. Now here's what we're gonna do. This fall, we're gonna be launching a very intensive uh, journey, a training journey for people who say, I wanna commit and lead others. I don't wanna say too much about it right now. I just want you to know that that next step is coming this fall right here at Trinity. We're gonna be training and raising up people who are gonna say, I'm gonna find, feed, and fight for specific people in this church and outside of this church. Because we have to disciple people to Jesus who don't know him, and we have to disciple people in Jesus who already know him to help them grow. But don't wait till this fall. Start opening up your heart and your home. Love people. Maybe some of you, your next step is simply just to meet your neighbors. Just learn their names. Learn something about them. Invite them to your backyard for a barbecue, for a cookout. Begin to say, I refuse to live for myself. I will live for others. Because, you know, we sang this morning, you can have it all, right? We sang that. You can have it all. Where do we get the strength to say that? Because Jesus spread his arms on the cross. And he said, you can have it all. He gave everything for us. And our worshipful response is to give everything for him and to commit to lead others. Let's pray together.